Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unlocking the Potential of Assessments, the show that delves into creating, delivering, and reporting on valid and reliable assessments. In each episode, we chat with assessment luminaries, influencers, subject matter experts, and customers to discover and examine the latest in best practice guidance for all things assessment. I'm your host, John Kleeman, founder and executive director of QuestionMark, the industry leader in assessment management software. Today, we're pleased to talk with Steve Lay, who's one of QuestionMark's product managers and an expert on scalable computerized assessment and integration between systems. Steve has a degree in mathematics from the University of Cambridge, and prior to joining QuestionMark, worked for a decade or so for Cambridge Assessment. Steve has been with QuestionMark for 11 years, and in that time has led our assessment delivery and integration efforts, and been the key individual who's ensured that the millions of assessments delivered with QuestionMark are robust and scalable. Steve is also active in the IMS and other e-learning standard groups, and among other achievements, co-led the IMS QTI version 2 project about question and test interoperability. Steve, welcome to our podcast. Thanks, John. Can you uh, talk to me about how you decided to go into assessments? Was it by design or by chance? Uh, Well, it was slightly by accident. Uh, I was working in the University of Cambridge uh, on computers in teaching, and particularly following up on my maths degree on the use of computers in the teaching of maths. Uh, And after a a number of projects in that area, uh, that whole world was changing. Uh, There was a lot of research into learning management systems. We didn't know to call them virtual learning environments at that point. Uh, But when the internet came along, uh, that began to change and we started looking at the impact of the internet uh, on teaching. And that was really a a turning point. And I made a sideways move within the University of Cambridge to uh, work at Cambridge Assessment. And uh, Cambridge Assessment is a a special part of the university uh, that uh, takes care of uh, examinations, assessments outside of the university. So not of the students themselves, but of perhaps prospective students, uh, such as 16 to 18 year olds, uh, typically. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's how I managed to find myself in the, uh, in the world of assessment. And was it really coming to it from a technology aspect, how you could bring technology into assessment and how do the conduct of assessments change with technology? Yeah, exactly. I mean, so Cambridge Assessment, uh, as an examination board, as you can imagine, there's a culture of very low risk. Uh, you know, these are the safe guardians of uh, such important programs as the UK A-level and GCSE and, of course, the international GCSEs uh, that are done all, ar- all around the world. And so uh, something like the Internet coming along is a real challenge to an organization to understand how it should change or even if it should change. And so my role within Cambridge Assessment was as part of a unit that was set up to help look at that impact uh, on of technological change on the organization as a whole. I mean, everything from the way the internet affected the way that the organization interacted with its customers uh, through to the impact actually on the assessment process itself. Interesting. And uh, was, was there a big drive towards uh, computerized assessment? Well, I think, again, the the culture was of uh, being more conservative, low risk, and just looking for some places at that time, and we're going back some years now, uh, looking for some opportunities where we might experiment uh, alongside the customers uh, to actually to see whether or not this was a a valid direction. Uh, So there were some uh, experiments 
both internationally and also in the UK, which were just looking, taking some baby steps uh, towards that. But I think there was certainly a feeling uh, at that time uh, that the world would change very, very quickly. And so uh, large organizations uh, are, you know, do have a concern that they, when a risk like that presents itself. And I think that was really the drive was coming from outside and the organization needed to react and understand how to deal with that uh, issue and how to maintain the quality of the assessment process uh, in, a, in a rapidly changing technological environment. When I first met you, which must have been perhaps 15 years ago or so, you were working on uh, QTI and interoperability between uh, different systems. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, what QTI is and uh, how you got involved? Sure. <laughs> so, uh, QTI or question and test interoperability was uh, a concept created uh, within an organization called the IMS. Uh, people often ask what the IMS stands for. I think the correct answer these days is it doesn't really stand for anything, uh, but it's an organization which is a, a global consortium of uh, educational publishers and uh, many higher education institutions and technology companies uh, uh, that come together uh, to agree technically how they can work together to improve education. And I think that in in the particular case of question and test interoperability or QTI, uh, the reason I got involved was because from the perspective of a, an assessment content provider, it's very attractive to think that you can take your assessment product all the way around the world and perhaps use different mechanisms, different technological solutions to deliver the assessment in different uh, areas, different countries, maybe even to different uh, types of uh, audience. Uh, and in order to do that, uh, the idea of writing your assessment once and then delivering it in lots of different places through lots of different tools is very attractive. And that's really the kind of problem which from my perspective, QTI was actually trying to solve by creating a kind of technical standard which we could actually use to create uh, assessment content in, which would then be playable uh, in, a, in a wide variety of different systems. Yes, no, I think that's right. And so I was involved with other people at Question Mark and outside Question Mark in the original version of one of QTI, where I think the big problem we were trying to solve was that you could create a question in one system and wouldn't be able to run it in another system. But I think you then got involved a bit later on. Do you want to talk about the version two of QTI that you uh, led the project and what that was about? Yes, of course. So when I first got involved, uh, Question Mark uh, were leading uh, the process and that's what we referred to as version one of the specification. Now, at that time, I think uh, the technical world, it's, it's, it's sometimes hard to imagine this uh, from the current vantage point, but was relatively divided between the idea of using HTML uh, as a mechanism of conveying text-based information or using other formats. And in fact, RTF uh, was used quite commonly and, and was part of the QTI standard. So already there was something of a schism between different suppliers and different content producers uh, within that market as to which one of these uh, uh, technical markup specifications they used for just for ordinary text. So, and I'm here, I'm talking about things like how you indicate that a word is in bold uh, or should be emphasized and how you end paragraphs and so on, just rather basic things like that. And so uh, when I 
uh, came on board uh, and started uh, moving into more of a leadership role within the uh, QTI initiative, you know, the challenge was to embrace the fact that HTML had won this war. And the web was was really the place where these activities were going to take place in the future. And so actually steering QTI from that version one through to uh, an HTML-based uh, standard, uh, which essentially had assessment extensions uh, to a core HTML concept, uh, you know, that was the uh, the driving force to try and unify those two halves of the QTI version one community. Oh, thank you. And do you want to talk a little bit, because I know you've been working at IMS for a long time now as a, a volunteer and uh, assistant, what is what What else does IMS do and uh, how, do, how do some of the other standards help the community? Well, so... I mean, there's a, a, a wide range of things that IMS does. I mean, if I go back in history a little bit, uh, even the uh, well-known standard SCORM contains significant uh, uh, contributions from the IMS community. And in fact, SCORM 2004 uh, contains not just the so-called IMS content packaging, the mechanism by which you zip things up so that you can pass your uh, learning content to your LMS, uh, but also uh, these more complex notions of so-called simple sequencing. Uh, so I was uh, involved uh, really on the periphery of some of those uh, early initiatives. But as time has gone on, of course, SCORM is still regularly in use uh, now, uh, but people are looking at newer mechanisms of how to actually do an integration when we know that the web is, is the platform. And of course, SCORM was all about zipping your content and passing it from the content author into the learning management system. Now we know that that content is much more likely to just be hosted on another website. And so this website to website interaction was a new challenge. And I think, you know, one of the key things that IMS has done over the last uh, sort of five, six years or so uh, is to really begin to tackle that challenge with what they call learning tools interoperability. And and that was something that uh, Chuck Severance was uh, instrumental in, in starting within the IMS. Uh, but it's now been taken forward by the organization as a whole and is, is a very successful mechanism of, of allowing tools to interact uh, uh, and, and means that the learning management system can begin to move towards being this looser aggregation of uh, different uh, content services uh, rather than simply the kind of static content. Uh, so, uh, and, and that's certainly something, you know, the LTI initiative is something I've been uh, quite uh, involved in as well, you know, since that was initially uh, started. And of course, Question Mark themselves uh, have taken up uh, learning tools interoperability and uh, really uh, worked with that to, as an integration solution, particularly within that uh, higher education uh, space where SCORM is, uh, uh, is now considered to be, uh, I, I think, something relegated to the past. And can you explain a little bit about um, how Question Mark uses LTI? Yeah, sure. So in actual fact, I mean, that that also touches a little bit on uh, how I originally joined Question Mark. So uh, when I made the uh, the transition from Cambridge Assessment through uh, to Question Mark, I spent a couple of years in between times working on implementing learning environments, uh, uh, including virtual learning environments, and also a custom-built uh, VLE that we'd been working on within Cambridge University. And, and having 
worked on those key integration points between those tools and the other tools that we were using. It was a great opportunity then uh, uh, to move to question mark and actually really begin to lead that integration effort. And that's uh, how then my story at question mark evolved a little, initially working on our range of connectors, uh, which connected your learning management system uh, directly to question marks uh, software. And we had custom connectors for each individual type of learning management system. Well, the power of LTI is it allows us to write some an LTI connector, uh, which can be used in a wider range of learning management systems. And now instead of writing code, which has to run natively within somebody else's learning management system, we're writing code that we can manage and control and update uh, on the question mark side and actually using the standard of LTI uh, to do the integration and take the strain not on the uh, on the technical integration. So uh, that it's particularly useful uh, to uh, customers who are using learning management systems in the uh, higher education space because they tend to be those early adopters uh, of LTI. I mean, Moodle is an obvious example, but there's a wide range of, um, of LMSs now uh, within that space uh, uh, that can link using LTI. And so that, that has opened the door to us um, uh, to integrate with uh, some of these new environments as, they, as they've come along. So if I understand right, we used to, when we wanted to integrate with an academic learning management system, have to write particular code, a Blackboard connector, a Moodle connector or whatever. But now if the learning management system supports LTI, we just um, connect out of the box. Yes, and, and it makes a huge difference. Um, just to give you uh, one example, I had a customer uh, running their learning management system on Solaris uh, once and uh, we needed to make special modifications to our code in order to allow them to run the connector with their LMS on the Solaris platform. I mean, that's a serious undertaking when that kind of thing happens. A lot of technical complexity uh, in, in that. All of that is now a thing of the past. So from a technical perspective, it's, uh, it's a much more satisfactory solution. And if I understand right, uh, a lot of academic LMSs, if not all of them now support LTI, and the corporate LMSs use um, AICC or SCORM, and that's the way that organizations who uh, call question mark from a learning management system use one of these different standards. Yes, absolutely. I mean, certainly the LMS is used in the corporate space. They tend to be slower to change. Uh, the higher education uh, community, as you can imagine, drives innovation often in learning and teaching uh, as well as uh, in the LMS space. And so the products in that area uh, are more, uh, perhaps more forward-looking and, and more likely to be changing, uh, whereas the, uh, the corporate LMS is uh, still using SCORM and uh, AICC often a, as a driver. What, what is your role at a question mark? You're, you're a product manager. What does that mean you actually do on a day-to-day -day basis? So a product manager, this is one of those kind of questions where uh, people often say, how would you describe what you do to your mother? And uh, actually being able to explain what a product manager is, 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 is not an easy thing. It's very easy to just say, oh, I work in computers. Uh, but actually the product manager has a really key role in an organization like ours. And I often think of it a little bit uh, like an hourglass on its side. On one side of, of my job, I have uh, all of our customer facing staff. So that's our technical support and our sales and our account managers. And then on the other side of, of my role, I have all of uh, the developers, the people creating the, the software uh, and actually uh, you know, implementing the operational side, running 
the business uh, of actually keeping the technical systems running. And the product managers kind of sit in between these two. Uh, we have to face both ways, uh, listening intently to customers. That's a key part of the role of a product manager is to listen and understand uh, uh, our customers and then to translate that into something uh, which can be acted on uh, by our developers so that we can actually develop our product in the right direction uh, to meet our customers' needs. So that's a, the, I see it as a very pivotal role, uh, you know, in the center of the organization. And, uh, and you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a great role to have as well because it means you get to uh, really get that feeling, uh, the vista of, the, of an organization as well and interact with a very wide range of people. So almost like every line of code that happens, a question mark goes through you. <laughs> Maybe almost every assessment that gets taken uh, at question mark goes through you. Does it feel like that sometimes? <laughs> well, sometimes it does feel a little like that. Uh, in, in my particular role at question mark, although, of course, I do uh, dip into the code to supervise uh, occasionally, uh, I try not to make it such that every line of code go goes past me these days. We have a very good uh, uh, CTO uh, who was, uh, takes care of uh, code quality and, and architectural issues but certainly it's it's a big uh, in terms of the actual features and what the product is actually doing and the product changes uh, increasingly my role is is to look at the, the majority of those kind of changes that come through to make sure that we're giving our customers that kind of coherent product experience that they would expect uh, when they uh, use question marks so I'd like to move the conversation a little into proctoring. Back in the paper days, and proctoring or invigilation was probably very different to what it is now. Uh, can you uh, move the conversation in that direction and talk a little bit about differences between paper and computer assessments and how proctoring has to change that? Sure, yes. I mean, this was actually a very big part of my role uh, when I was at Cambridge Assessment as well. In fact, we did a number of observational studies around uh, some paper-based testing as uh, some of the very early computer-based uh, work we were doing was actually computer augmented testing rather than computer based. So in other words, people would actually sit in front of an ordinary paper test, uh, but they would use a computer to help them, for example, with complex calculations in, in mathematics, and linear programming and so on. These are things that can't easily be done on paper, uh, but can very easily be done uh, with relatively straightforward computer tools, in some cases even uh, using Excel. But the challenge is how do you do simple things like make sure that you can and print out your output and include it and submit it with the rest of your written paper at the end of the exam. You know, what's the effect that that has on an exam room, which would normally be a very quiet place, but now there are people clattering on keyboards and even getting up to get printed output and so on. So some of that early work that we were doing was, was really looking at, at some quite mundane aspects, you might say, of the impact of technology. But as, as we've moved forwards uh, now, of course, there's far more actual computer-based testing going on. So the paper element of many of those kinds of tasks uh, is now a distant memory and people would actually interact with the computer the entire time. And that has actually brings a whole bunch of new challenges, of course, to the assessment process as well. But I mean, proctoring is a key one that, that you've mentioned. Now, it may be, and some customers will often do this, will just set up a room uh, to be very much like paper-based delivery. So you just put computers on the desks instead of pens and pencils, uh, and somebody walks around and proctors the environment in, in very similar way to the way that they would do a traditional paper test. However, uh, we now have uh, a number of different types of option available in 
including such technologies as uh, what we call online proctoring. So in an online situation, the person taking the test, they don't actually have to travel to a test centre. They can be sat in their room rather like I am now, actually, as I talk to you as we record this podcast, uh, surrounded by my headset and my camera and uh, all these, uh, and my own computer, but I could interact with the test uh, and take a test. But of course, securing an environment like this is a challenge. And online proctoring uh, aims to solve that challenge using the microphone and the video uh, recording capabilities of most uh, computers and various onboarding processes, such as scanning the room to check there's nothing on my wall, which might give me a clue and that I haven't got cheat sheets uh, taped uh, to my chair and all, all these kinds of things. So it's really similar kinds of similar kind of defense to uh, on uh, the in-person proctoring, but actually transformed uh, into a virtual environment. And of course, you know, we're now so much more used to having virtual meetings and sort of what we used to call video conferencing, but which is now almost completely routine, that uh, th it makes sense uh, that we look at this kind of, uh, of assessment proctoring as well. But there's also a, a, another form of proctoring which sits uh, a little bit differently and that is what we might call a record and review session. So in that situation you don't actually have an online proctor uh, looking after you through the or looking out at you uh, through your video camera and listening in. However it, the session is recorded so you have the same kind of defenses but it's not normally quite so easy for someone to intervene during the test. Uh, however, you do have that audit trail. So should an issue come up later, you can actually review recordings and actually challenge somebody if, for example, they are seen to be uh, collaborating with somebody during the test. And of course, these kind of things can go both ways as well. You might have a disturbance during your test. And again, that recording might help to taken as an accommodation uh, for something which was unavoidable uh, during the assessment process. And, and you know, this, this this kind of session actually can be, you know, these kind of techniques can be very good from an accessibility point of view for assessment as well, because it's not just about travel. It might even be about, um, you know, other situational challenges that you might have in your home environment. You might actually be able to come in and do your assessment uh, uh, in that period. So let's just think about it from the point of view of somebody trying to set up an assessment program. You're setting up an assessment program. You presumably got the options. You could either do it unproctored, uh, just trusting the person. You could make the person come into a test center and be proctored. You can do it online via video proctoring, or you can use record and review. How would you advise somebody to think about the pros and cons of the different approaches? So I think I would start by looking at the risk of content theft. So we often look at at two particular challenges in the assessment process. One of them is the type of cheating that comes from collaboration, having a smarter person next to me whispering the answers to me. Uh, and the other is the theft of content. So I might take the test in bad faith and actually sit there the whole time taking pictures of the uh, of the information that's being given so that I can then distribute that to others who then learn up all of the answers and, and come and, and perform later. So I think it's if I was advising somebody around these technologies, I'd look at your attitude to those risks in order to see which kind of technique to use. And the other big thing to take into consideration there is your relationship with the person taking the test. And so, you know, sometimes we 
talk about building trust relationships. So you, the first time someone comes and takes a test with you, you don't really know much about them. You don't have much data about them. They're probably relatively untrusted. And so you might need something like in-person proctoring for that, or certainly probably live online proctoring. Whereas as time goes on and you build up data and trust with somebody, uh, you might be able to use other types of proctoring solutions like recording review or even unproctored tests in order to establish you know, metrics for, for that person without out having to use online proctoring. So I tend to look at those those issues and say if content theft is a big deal and you need somebody who is able to intervene during the test, so either in person where somebody can physically intervene to perhaps turn a computer off if they see someone with a mobile phone taking pictures of a screen or online proctoring and, and question marks online proctoring tools provide tools to the proctor so that the proctor can remotely intervene uh, if they see some malpractice. So if I'm busy taking a test and I take my mobile phone out and I appear to be about to take a picture of the screen, then the, uh, the online proctor, even though they're not in the room with me, they can hit a button that will blank my screen and prevent me from actually capturing the content. So I think if that's a big risk, then the in-person or online proctored solutions, I think are quite important because simply knowing that somebody has stolen your content uh, from a recording may may not be enough for you to, to follow up on later on. Whereas the record and review solution and uh, question mark are soon to uh, bring out a record and review solution of our own, then that would be something you know that would be useful, particularly where you've, you're, you're established establishing a relationship or you've established a relationship with someone. So, for example, an employee of a company may not wish to risk their employment by breaking company rules and cheating in a test. But if no one is watching them, if it's completely unproctored, well, perhaps they might think about doing it. Whereas if there's that audit trail from a recording review, then it just makes that process a little bit more formal. And in a way, it, it's a method by which you as the employer can say, I care about this. I care that you do this assessment right. This is an important program to us. I want accurate information on everyone's knowledge and skills that I'm testing. And that helps to just add that little bit of extra formality, which means that your employee is not tempted to, to cheat during the test because they know that it's going to be on record and that they are accountable for that. And they would have to uh, explain to somebody later on why they chose to cheat if, if they were caught doing so. Oh, that makes sense. So I think we're saying that for uh, lower stakes tests and when you've got a relationship with the a person, then either unproctored or perhaps record and review makes sense. Uh, but I know there's one controversy and we would love to hear your views about whether in-person proctoring or online via video proctoring is actually more or less secure or what the pros and cons of that. So, I mean, clearly, if you allow yes. online proctoring, you're making somebody be able to take the test from home or their office, which is hugely beneficial if there's a long travel to the test center. But what's your views on its security? Yes, well, so of course, there, and, and perhaps you're hinting at this, there is one uh, significant risk with uh, in-person proctoring, uh, particularly in an on-site situation. And that is where we go from, if you like, retail cheating to wholesale cheating. Uh, it is possible that a test center itself might be corrupted, particularly if the test center has uh, a vested interest in ensuring that people do very well there. And this is a, a problem, particularly some types of assessment. And certainly there have been some cases uh, where the person running a test center very, very clearly uh, 
placed information such as writing the correct answers on the board and I mean this is not new with computer-based testing I should point out this is this kind of malpractice has been a problem in uh, in paper-based testing too and that is a significant threat and so in actual fact sometimes online proctoring can have the advantage that your proctor is a relatively random individual that you are very unlikely to have had any kind of relationship, I mean, or vanishingly small chance of having a relationship with your online proctor beforehand. The uh, the online proctoring organization is very unlikely to have any kind of incentive uh, related to how well the candidates do. And so, uh, you know, that reduces some of the risks that uh, may be present uh, in an in-person proctoring situation where the candidate maybe uh, has a financial transaction, for example, with the organization that's organizing the assessment. And, you know, we have sometimes even at uh, school level uh, cases where you know, teachers disappointed by the performance of pupils they know can do better attempted to um, create a result which they feel is more reflective of what the candidate should have done rather than what the candidate actually did on the day so you know these are these are these are perhaps kind of rarer threats but when they happen they can you know undermine the test for all of the people who take the test through that test center including people who had no intention of cheating and and so you know it's as i say all of these techniques cut both ways. It's not just about protecting the assessment from cheats, but it's also about protecting the other people, the candidates who take the assessment and making sure that they are part of a fair process, especially if they paid money to take an assessment. It's extremely important to them uh, that the uh, process is done fairly. So what would you, what would you advise uh, an organization if they're starting, if they're planning to do online proctoring, what are the thought of, sort of things they should set up and and prepare for? So first of all, of course, I would uh, obviously say come and talk to Question Mark because we can help you uh, with a lot of these kinds of, of issues yourself. But on a more uh, general note, I think if you're in the process of setting up an online proctoring process, I think you know, you need to, I mean, let, let's assume that you've you've got uh, perhaps a slightly looser relationship with an organization. You might be an awarding body, for example, actually doing a certification assessment for people who uh, could be anywhere in the world. So it might be an international process. So that would be an indicator that you might be using online proctoring. I think I would start, perhaps the, the most important thing, I mean, there's one big takeaway from all of these proctoring solutions, but particularly perhaps where you have this remote relationship, you've got to make it clear to your candidates, to the people taking your tests, what the rules are, what your expectations are. If they're allowed to use a pocket calculator or if they're allowed to use a book, for example, during the assessment, you know, make sure all of these rules are, are clear and everybody knows where they stand. Make sure they understand that they're going to be filmed. So there's a lot of that kind of pre-priming sort of priming of the system so that people are really engaged in the process. They understand how serious it is that you are going to be looking after the assessment and making sure that the process is secure for their benefit as much as, as your own. And I think then actually you know, looking at some of the other issues about you know, how that then fits in to your business. How do your candidates come to you? How do they register for your test? I think you know, then that's where, the, where you kind of begin to move over into the implementation phase. Thank you, Steve. And uh, I believe you're also doing some work with the IMS about proctoring. Do you want to fill us in on that? So uh, the IMS have recently been uh, looking at, with some significant encouragement from Question Mark, at that junction between 
proctoring solutions, including online proctoring, but also record and review solutions. So any type of technically assisted proctoring, uh, the actual join between a technical system like that and the assessment system, which is actually doing the assessment. And so actually it turns out that that can be made into an application, a sort of specialization of the LTI process we discussed earlier. And that's technically very helpful, but it also means that you can actually build that technical handoff process on some very secure uh, technical footings. And I mean, you know, this is a, you know, this is actually a complex area. I mean, it, it seems so simple when you log into a computer but preventing uh, some of the threats that can happen there, especially if you've got people who are prepared to collude, which is not so common for something like online banking, where normally I only want myself to be able to look at my online bank account. I don't want to collude with someone so that they can also see my bank. So it's all about defending me from that outside threat. But in the world of uh, examinations, we have a different kind of threat where actually collusion is a very real thing. And so actually making sure that the proctor is really sure that the person who's taking the test is the person that they are seeing through the video camera, that kind of thing is technically harder to do than you might think. And so, you know, the IMS initiative to build on the LTI security model to provide those handovers between proctoring systems and uh, and assessment systems is a, is making a big contribution to that, the technical security of that process uh, as we go forward. That sounds good. So just to wind up here, one of the things I'm trying to get my guests on this uh, podcast series to do is to sort of give advice to people about what they think they should be doing in assessment. So if somebody's listening to this uh, uh, podcast and wanting to do better assessments, uh, obviously you've given quite a lot of advice on proctoring. Anything else you'd like to share with the audience? I mean, probably the simplest thing is just actually think about about measuring, actually have a look. Uh, I mean, I've spoken to many people who have said, oh, you know, I just do my all of my tests unproctored. I mean, perhaps 10 years ago, those same people were the people who had said, oh, I don't need to test my, uh, my employees or my students. They know uh, what they're doing, only to discover when they actually put some basic quizzes to them uh, that those people know much less uh, and had got much less from the course than they thought. And I think the same kind of learning point can come with proctoring as well. Uh, and I've heard people say to me, oh, I trust the people, you know, I've got a great relationship with all these people. And if you say, well, you know, is that something that you can demonstrate to somebody uh, to show, you know, how how committed and 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 how 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 solid this relationship is? And so they say, sure, uh, let me actually, uh, you know, do some statistical analysis, for example, to check to see whether there's been collusion, and and suddenly that evidence begins to appear, and and they discover that people weren't really taking the the process very seriously uh, because they they hadn't had that conversation. So I think that my my top line takeaway to people is to actually have that conversation and consider using proctoring processes, not because you expect people to cheat, but as a way of signaling to those people uh, that this is a serious process and, and you, you need people to take it seriously when they're taking the test as well. Thank you, Steve. That's brilliant. We really appreciate listening to you today and thank you. Well, thanks very much, John. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please reach out to me directly at john at with any questions, comments, or if you'd like to keep the conversation going. You can also visit the Question Mark website at questionmark.com to register for any of our many best practice webinars we host at least monthly. Thanks again, and please tune in next time for another exciting podcast discussion. Mm -hmm.